Hi, and welcome to Doesn't Anybody Ever Get It Right? I'm Kayla. I'm Max. And this is a show where two pretentious unemployed theater folks look at some of Broadway's famous flops and forgotten friends. I wanted it to be alliterative. And (laughs) reimagine them how we would like to produce them now. So, Kayla, let's start with who we are so that those of us... Us? So that everybody listening could actually have a clue who these people are. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I am a 22-year-old person. My pronouns are she, her. I am a recent graduate, probably, as this podcast is released, of Emory University. I studied theater and business. And I have been in love with theater from a very young age. I saw a Broadway production of The Lion King when I was four years old. And I cried because I was not black or a boy, and therefore I could not play the role of young Simba. It was one of the biggest tragedies of my young life. I have to say I'm so jealous. The first time I ever saw a Broadway production, I was 21. (laughs) I'm Jewish. All my family lives in New York. Ah. That's what happens. Sorry. So I've been acting community theater for a couple of years when for a senior project for the International Baccalaureate Program, um, my best friends and I decided to direct a musical because our school didn't have a theater program. We were the small charter. And so we co-directed a production of Into the Woods and I'd always loved bossing people around. I was a bossy bitch from day one. And I was like, wow, I actually love the text work that it's like the text work that I already love doing as an actor, getting to do that for whole shows and getting to have those conversations and share insights with actors. I just, I really, really fell in love with it. And I was acting in the show too, and it it got adjudicated for some awards. And I remember in one of my adjudication forms, it was like, it was clear that you did not focus on your acting performance in this show. I'm guessing you put the energy into directing. And that was correct. Acting was fun, but directing was everything. So I went into college knowing that directing was the thing that I wanted to do. But as a freshman, I acted because freshmen don't direct. And then uh, my sophomore year, I got to direct a musical theater show, which I will talk about later. It is a flop that's very close to my heart. And since then, I've directed a number of readings for new plays, including from a workshop with Lauren Gunderson, Name Drop. And now I'm unemployed. So... Life's good. (laughs) Let me direct your place. Thanks. I'm Max. I'm a 24-year-old theater artist. My pronouns are he, him, and I live in Bern, Switzerland. I moved to Bern, Switzerland after graduating from the University of Arizona with a Bachelor's of Fine Art in Professional Acting. (laughs) The most pretentious degree that one could have, in my opinion. I've been doing theater for a long time. My mother put me in a production of The Wizard of Oz when I was four years old, and... I've been doing theater ever since then. I realized I wanted to direct when I was in college and I was looking at the upcoming season of shows and I realized there's not a single role I want to play. But I thought some of these shows were pretty interesting. I would like to direct. So I went to my professor at the time and I asked him if I could assist and direct. And he said yes. And since then, I've directed several staged readings. I directed a workshop. I also taught an acting class slash human empathy class at the University of Arizona School of Law. And I'm very excited to be doing this podcast with my good friend Kayla.
All right, Kayla, why don't you give us the concept of this show? How's this whole thing going to work? This show is essentially two parts. We will start with a brief history of the production we're talking about, some analysis of the criticism, where it may have gone wrong. And then we'll delve into what really inspired us to start this podcast because we did this just for fun. Um, and that is we're going to take apart the show and put it back together the way that we like it. Nothing is sacred. We will change the script. We will cut songs. We will add songs. We will make suggestions for sets and costumes. Max is a huge tech whiz and I sew. So between the two of us, we have a decent understanding of tech and we will say what our dream production would look like if we were Broadway producer, director, humans, and could start not from scratch, but take the material and make it exactly what we wish it could be and realize its fullest potential in our eyes. So first, we're going to dive into a little bit of the history of how Carrie the Musical came to be and what's the show about. So quick synopsis, Carrie White is an outsider in her American high school. After getting her period in the locker room, which her fundamentalist Christian mother Margaret failed to warn her about, her fear and embarrassment trigger telekinetic abilities. Popular girl Chris Harginson refuses to apologize for her treatment of Carrie and vows revenge after being banned from the senior prom because of it. On the other hand, Chris's friend Sue Snell realizes how terrible they've all been treating Carrie and wants to make it up to her. Sue asks her boyfriend, Tommy Ross, to take Carrie to the prom and give her a nice, memorable night. He does, and all is well, until Chris and her boyfriend, Billy, ruin everything by dumping a bucket of pig's blood on her head. So she murders everyone. Relatable. Carrie was originally a novella by Stephen King, which was published in 1974. This was his very first novel after he had had a measurable amount of success in writing short stories for men's magazines. It actually was highly successful as a novel and later became a movie adaptation in 1976, which starred Sissy Spacek. Fun fact, it was actually two years faster to the movie adaptation than the Harry Potter films. That is a fun fact. I didn't know that. So the screenwriter for the film, Lawrence Cohen, saw an opera, I believe it was called Lulu, that was about just a bunch of people doing horrific things and essentially said, if the person who wrote this opera was still alive, they would have written a, a musical from Carrie or an opera from Carrie and loved the concept and teamed up with Michael Gore and Dean Pitchford of fame, fame, uh, they wrote fame, to create a musical adaptation. So Gore, Pitchford, and Cohen premiered the first act via a workshop in 1984, and it was a huge success. That's how they got their initial producers signed on. They were excited about the concept, about the music. It was a fun, current sound, and they thought they could have a big hit. And then a man named Terry Hands came in. Terry Hands decided that he really wanted to direct this piece. He used his smooth talking words, and he was apparently very good at smooth talking. He actually was the head of the Royal Shakespeare Company at the time. So he decided that they would start at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon and then move to Broadway from there. So the tryouts for this musical started in February of 1988. Terry Hans was the director, as mentioned before, and, and an American woman was the choreographer, 
Debbie Allen. This actually was not the only part that was half British and half American. The cast itself was also half British and half American. This became a little troubled because it meant that half of the time your cast was out of town and the other half of the time your cast was in town. And therefore, some people got paid more than others. The cast of this podcast is also half (laughs) European and half American, as I am located in Atlanta. And my dear friend Max is located in Switzerland. That's true. Um, So the original Stratford tryout was mildly successful, but it ended up being a big problem because Terry Hands decided that the problem with the script was that it had too much text. He wanted it to flow better. And his way of making it flow better was not to add scenes or change scenes, but simply cut them entirely. So by the time that the show went to open on opening night, the show was almost entirely a sung through musical. The reason why the Stratford, the reason why the Royal Shakespeare Company wanted another musical was because they had actually just uh, mounted successfully Les Mis in the West End, and they had realized that musicals might be a good way to make some money while their Shakespeare plays were struggling. Carrie transferred to the Great White Way Broadway in April of 1988, only a few months after the tryout at the Royal Shakespeare Company. They had only three days of tech rehearsals for a massive like $10 million technically advanced crazy set. Yeah, so they, they were supposed to have longer, but there was a delay in shipping. And instead of pushing back previews, they just abbreviated the tech, which, you know, was a choice. Always works. Always works. Tech rehearsals are basically a formality. Uh <laughs> So they had their first preview on April 28th of 1988 and opened on May 12th. Max, do you want to know when they closed? When did they close? May 15th of the same year. You heard me right. Three days later. Oh, goodness. That was a bummer. Lost over $7 million in producer investments. Quick closing wasn't due to the fact that it was selling poorly. The, The audience was pretty well packed. But the downfall of Carrie was really the critical acclaim. Michael Cuchuara with the Associated Press summed it up really well in his article when he said, Carrie is not quite bad enough to be good. However, even though it closed only three days later, it does live on in many, many bootlegs. You can see bootleg productions of the original Stratford-upon-Avon festival. You can see the very first act of the Broadway production. Thanks to Scott Wise, he was one of the actors in the show, right, Kayla? Yeah, ensemble member. He filmed the show from the stage management booth. And then there are also many um, soundboards of the original production. There are many unauthorized productions of the show, and a few of them actually had the blessing of the original writers of the production. The most notable ones were the very first one that came after the Broadway closing, which was done at Stage Door Manor, a uh, theater camp for rich people, and, <laughs> <laughs> and Emerson University. Then, several years later, a wonderful man named Stafford Arima decided that he wanted to do a revival of the production, and he talked the original creative team into helping him uh, revitalize this production for the modern age, and we got an incredible show in 2012 starring the late Marin Mazzi and Molly Ranson. Yes, so... 
Carrie didn't die there. There have been a few notable productions, including a Seattle production starring Alice Ripley and our personal favorite, the LA Immersive production, The Killer Experience. Check out clips on YouTube. You will not regret it. And it's had a huge second life in high school, college, and community theater productions. So that's Carrie. We should put this out into the universe now. I want a national tour of the LA Immersive production. Thank you very Ah, much. I'd love that so much, except also I want a national tour directed by a woman. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Great. So uh, let's bring on our guest. We have our guest today, who is Lando, a good friend of mine. Lando Ruiz is a 27-year-old independent sound engineer who has been involved in community theater in Albuquerque, New Mexico for nine years. He is the resident sound engineer for Albuquerque Little Theater and the technical director of Music Theater Southwest. Lando has independently studied sound for the past six years and has also reached out into other design elements for over 75 community theater productions across seven different production companies. He was scheduled to direct Carrie at Music Theatre Southwest, but was postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But he ended up directing a virtual performance of Monty Python's Spamalot, socially distanced concert-ish version during Carrie's original time slot. Welcome, Lando. (laughs) How does it feel to be revisiting Carrie? I mean, it's hard to say revisiting when I feel like I'm constantly visiting it. (laughs) And I actually have to thank you, Lando, because um, you are the sole reason that I know about Carrie and what Carrie is. We were working on a production of Grease at Albuquerque Little Theater, and we were sitting on the set, and Lando just pulled up his phone and said, have you heard of this musical? And that started a love for this show. If I can uh, cause people to know about this show by any means, I am fine with that. So let's dive right in. I think we're going to start by just talking about things that we would generally change about the production. And then we're going to go kind of chronologically through the show and get more nitpicky. So I guess, can I start with the framing of the show? Absolutely. Yes. Amazing. So one of the great things about the revival, revisal, whatever you want to call it, is they used a theatrical tool to free them from the kind of the strict chronological structure. But I don't think they framed it as well as they could have. Essentially, it begins with Sue Snell being interviewed by police. And it's very much like, what happened? Who is Carrie White? We are scary policemen. And it's just not a vibe. I understand they're trying to kind of replicate the effect of the novel, the study of the White incident in the novel, but I just don't think it's that effective. I think it would be a lot more interesting if these were Sue Snell's therapy sessions possibly in inpatient treatment in a psych ward, um, because obviously an event like this, losing everyone kind of near and dear to you in your age bracket, partially because of a choice you made, would be very mentally taxing. And and that would also kind of call back to the movie where she's having these psychiatric episodes. She She sees Carrie's hand grabbing her from the grave, all that stuff. I think it would set up a really interesting possibility for that, for the final image, because it does end with Sue Snell on that epilogue. Possibly her seeing Carrie in her pomp prom dress soaked in blood somewhere walking in the audience and that being like her hallucination i think it could be uber spooky i am a big set and lighting person and so i basically can't think about directing a show until i think about a set so my set for this production I want it to be an immersive location. So it's going to be on site, probably at a high school. And the way that I want the show to start at the very beginning is the audience will walk in in the complete aftermath of the prom. All the prom decorations are there. It's a complete disaster all over the place. 
And because it's a high school, I want it to be in a gymnasium. So the audience will be on either side of like a basketball court in the center. And the thing about the set is I want it throughout the production to um, slowly move to a pristine, beautiful right before prom moment so that we can sort of retrospectively see as the uh, the audience can sort of retrospectively see the way that Carrie builds in her strength and hope before it's all torn down in the uh, actual prom scene. I also want this move to be extremely glacial. The audience should not be able to notice that the set is changing until we've gotten to the prom scene and they've realized, wow, this is not what it looked like before. We love a little by little kind of change. Very spooky. I hate to step on your on your set train. But there is one small thing that I thought of when we were watching one of the revivals in maybe the Seattle production. The cellar that Carrie gets locked in was like this big spacious balcony. And I was like, this is not the feeling that I want. I want it to feel so claustrophobic. I want us to feel like we're in that closet with her. And I want it to have four walls. And so I thought a cool way to accomplish that would be to have three walls and a scrim. So it would be... For those of you who don't know what a scrim is, basically when it's lit from the front, it's opaque. You can't see through it. But when you backlight it, you can see inside. So essentially, she would be shut in this door that's a scrim. It would backlight and you'd be able to see her in there praying and eventually using her telekinesis. Now, Lando, you, as said in your bio, were actually supposed to direct a production of Carrie. I know I've seen your set design and model for this uh, show. So tell us a bit about your vision for how the audience experiences this play, because I thought it was really cool. Um, so I'll be honest, I kind of took the ideas that you and I had talked about years ago and kind of warped them into my own idea. Basically, the audience would walk into the theater, they would see papers strewn about, burned. Basically, the show is more of a concept of Sue Snell's memory and just things that she has experienced, mainly because I view Sue as the main character, not Carrie, strangely enough. So yeah, the audience would walk into seeing a destroyed set, very minimal. The very edges of the playing spaces would be burnt. So it looks like the, like it's it's an area that's burnt onto the stage, just as the same way that all these events are burnt into Sue Snell's memory. Ooh. Throughout the opening number of In, the ensemble, as they're singing, are collecting all the papers to start off the top of the show with just a clean slate so that during intermission, audience gets to leave on this kind of higher note at the end of Act 1 until second act happens, prom destruction, and then they get to walk back out and sing pretty much the exact same imagery that they saw when they walked in of burnt papers strewn about throughout the house. I was hoping that we could get even like the fluorescent lighting to flicker on and off, having things look disheveled, purchase paintings just to be able to burn them and have them hanging off their wires and everything just so that the audience leaves in the same place that Sue is, right where you started at the beginning. Love that. That's awesome. And to top it all off, this was all going to be done at Musical Theater Southwest. It has a small little black box, very intimate space. And each director tries to do something different with it. My idea was one that I haven't seen there over the past nine years that I've seen and done shows there, where basically the audience would be ushered in from the far side of the entrance to then walk through the set, sit in their seats, and then they get to turn around and watch the show. So they're physically looking back where they came from, just as Sue Snell does throughout the show. Lando's a big fan of symbolism. No. 
<laughs> All right, Max, you want to go into casting? Yeah. So for casting, I have two very strong opinions about the casting of this show. And they're my only opinions about the casting of this show. Everything else could be cast, however, in any other way. The first one is cast me as Carrie in every production <laughs> of Carrie. Thank you. I believe Carrie should be an extremely unconventionally attractive person. Nobody should look at her and say, that's somebody I would be conventionally attracted to. I have no problem with the actress who plays Carrie being an absolutely stunning, interesting looking person, but I just don't think that in any way she should look like a standard TikTok, Instagram influencer does. I totally agree, Max. I'm really tired of seeing these really pretty white girls being like, oh, but it's hard. I'm secretly ugly. Oh, just kidding. I'm pretty. Look at me at prom. I also think it could be incredibly impactful if Carrie was played by a person of color, especially because she is seen as like this person that has inherently struggled because of her home life. And I think that when you see someone who has faced persecution because of simply the color of their skin, you see that inherent struggle and that might add a another layer. I also just think that we need to stop casting white people as like the default for shows like this. You don't have to be doing hairspray to have your cast have a half black ensemble. Like just, just cast people who are good. Like there's no reason that every member of this core cast couldn't be a different race. There's no reason that they all have to be white. Like they have primarily been in major productions. Yeah. It's about time that the uh, entire theater industry moves toward far more inclusive casting for everything. Every single part of the show should be represented by all walks of life. Yeah. I'm also not interested in colorblind casting though. This is like a longer conversation for another day, but I I think color conscious casting is much more is much more culturally interesting and like being aware of how race plays into our experience as actors and as individuals. Yeah. It's a whole thing. If you want good content on that, January Lavoy, who's a professor at my university, has a great podcast. I will put it in the show notes. She's amazing. She did a podcast with someone and I listened to it and it was so amazing. No, so long as so long as you commit to it, there's nothing wrong with yeah. So if, with people that look different, because people look different. Yep. Yeah, so if your production's all white, I'm gonna punch you in the face. That's that's what I'm saying here. My second point is about Margaret. In the original production, Margaret was extremely old, and in the revival, Margaret was still older. But I think that it's pretty clear in the way that the play is written and the way that she interacts with Carrie that Margaret was extremely young when she had Carrie. My belief is that she was 17 or 16 at the time, which means that the person who plays Margaret should look like she is mid-30s at the most. Yeah, when, when Max brought that up to me, I was a little shook. We're going to go into costuming a little bit. Again, a little pet PV stuff. Costuming should be consistent with the values of the characters. So this is something Big that problem I for <laughs> Seattle specifically really bugged us. Like Alice Ripley's cleavage, we love to see it, but not here, ma'am. Not yeah. for Margaret White. When Margaret's boobs are hanging out, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, ma'am. Put those dirty pillows away. Uh <laughs> Um, another way to make Carrie stand out from the get-go in, in the opening number without doing any of the traditional theatrical things to draw attention to her and make her the odd one out 
besides her just acting and being herself is to have all the other girls in short little gym shorts and have her wearing large basketball shorts because there's no way that she would wear something above the knee. It just, her mother would never allow that long skirts. Really, I really liked the way that she was dressed in the revival. Actually, her shoulders were showing though, which I think they shouldn't do until the prom, which is why it's like, it's so shocking. Oh, excellent point there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I want that full butterfly effect. And then I want Chris to be like, primo popular bitch i don't want to see i don't want to see her trying to be edgy like she is preppy as fuck because that'll give the contrast to billy it'll make more sense why like billy is the spooky boyfriend to like the good girl the fake good girl and like to scare daddy if she doesn't already appear scary herself which is something that max brought up too he was like yeah i think it was the, um, the scary thing seattle production as well where chris is essentially dressed as a goth character and it just doesn't make any sense and she sings this whole song about how billy is this guy that scares her dad and if she's dressed in like these clothes i think her dad wouldn't be so affected by whatever random man comes into the house Lando, you can just shove yourself in here anytime yeah, you want. <laughs> literally, we're so obnoxious. We are as long-winded as the title. And we've been solely talking and thinking about this for like two weeks. No, I mean, I really like those ideas of the casting, costuming. I agree that the costuming should absolutely represent the characters. And I feel like that's an easy one to overlook when it comes to the costuming is just because, I mean, you want Carrie to be attractive at the prom. And so you end up thinking of the destination, not the journey. So true. So true, Queen. And in my opinion, that's one of the biggest ways that you can tell a community theater production versus like a well-produced regional theater production or Broadway is the costuming because it always looks out of place because somebody was asked to bring whatever was in their wardrobe and it didn't fit the whole cohesive vision. Also, everyone is 65 years old in community theater. This is not a specific call out, but it is a little bit. Okay. Another thing about Carrie is a huge issue with the original production that I think continues to kind of be an issue with the revival is if you don't come in with knowledge of the source material, it can be a little bit unclear what the fuck's going on, especially with the telekinesis. They read a definition at one point. They're like, in the revival? Or? I'm pretty sure. I, oh, have okay. a re- I have a memory of this. Yes. they. She reads a definition in the book, but it's kind of disjointed. And then there's that. So she moves the the crucifix there's that weird moment where she's like fucking with a chair and then Derek Klena is like hi and she's like ah <laughs> and then the prom oh and then the windows and then the prom and I'm like that's just not enough I want there to be a lot more small instances of the telekinesis just because she has emotional outbursts that aren't those ones so like the shattered light bulb in the period scene would be great to bring back it was originally an issue because the coach smacked her across the face, which we shouldn't do because that's very not of our times. Literal um, child abuse. <laughs> literal child abuse also like, yeah, it's just wild. And then there's the beat in the song Carrie right off. Everyone's shouting scary, Carrie, scary, Carrie. There's a beat before she starts singing. That's not my name. I think it would be cool if like there were lockers on set. If a couple of them just kind of slammed clothes on that beat, it'd be like a little subtle, but definitely noticeable. And then like, when she explodes at Sue in that in the classroom right before Sue's big song, it would be cool if like a chair fell over when she starts shouting at her. There's these moments of emotional outbursts for Carrie. And I think if they were connected to events, like a chair falling over or a light bulb shattering, just like things here and there, that could really help contextualize the telekinesis. Good. 
I have uh, one general lighting note, but it's not really general. It's sort of the one that we'll use to start our deep analysis into all the nooks and crannies of this show. In the original production in Stratford-upon-Avon and then in Broadway, there was no sort of pre-show dimming. It was just the audience was sitting there, there was music playing, and then the music cut and the lights turned off instantly, just snapped off. And there are many firsthand reports of people screaming in the audience. <laughs> and I just love that sort of introduction to this is the night you you're going that. to be experiencing. That's how I want to start the, the sort of feeling for this show. So lights are down. We hear the chords for In, the opening number. Lando, you spoke a little bit about how during In, people be picking up the papers. Are there any other visions that you have for this kind of opening moment for the show? So a lot of my ideas revolve around really connecting the words with movement. Symbolism? <laughs> so like, for example, towards the beginning of the song where it talks about God, please, sh or shoot me, please. Yes. But having most of the most of the ensemble just doing the traditional with one person pointing their gun at another to highlight a lot of the school shootings that have happened just because it's like something that we all have to deal with. And that's part of the problem. The show is about the things that we have to deal with just in a different viewpoint. And I think that getting a lot of those things out there at the top of the show is a great way to start so people can start picking up those small little symbols throughout the entire production. On a very different note, let's go from school shooters to prom. I think that Tommy needs to ask Sue to prom. She mentions it later. She says he asked me and I told him yes, um, all that, but like we never see it. And I think it could be so easy if he just like, there's, there's a moment right before Coach Gardner comes in and is like, stop making out where I just, I would love to see him like hold up one of those cheesy promposal posters for Sue and she says yes and then she's making out with him and that's kind of the catalyst. That's the instigating moment. Yeah. And that establishes their relationship and also makes the kiss important, which I, I mean, obviously high schoolers just make out sometimes. Not everything needs a reason, but I love giving reasons for things. <laughs> I don't have any thoughts on Carrie, that number. I don't I have any thoughts number, on Carrie either. I that is just, the actor kicking ass. I don't, you know, I don't love that they leave her alone on stage the whole time. I wish that there was more around her. Like, I think she should be alone on stage for some of it, but it could almost be like a beautiful and Heather's kind of moment where she is alone. No one can hear her, but there's, there's kind of vignettes happening around her for part of it. I think that could be cool visually. It's just, for me, it's a little bit too long of a song to have it be a straight park and bark. Yeah, and boy, in the original Broadway production, it was full park and bark. That poor girl it just was. stood she there so in though. one spotlight, no other light on the stage, just singing it out. Lindsay was our queen. I mean, is. She's still alive. If you want, I can give you my thoughts on, on the song. Yes. Absolutely. Don't ask permission. Just talk. We don't give a fuck. Because you had mentioned the lockers shutting. My view was it was more of one of Carrie's first moments of really just having it. And so she kind of escapes into her own mind. So everything just freezes. Everyone's ridiculing her towards the center. Everyone just freezes on that downbeat of the music on That's Not My Name. All the faces of the ensemble should be very menacing, very aggressive towards Carrie until she starts naming off the names that she has been called spastic weirdo dumb bitch, where the entire ensemble mouths those words along with her. Love that. 
after that is done, they all face away just so you can see that Carrie is around people and yet she's completely shunned by everyone. I like that. Me too. You want to talk about Open Your Heart, Max? Yes. So I hate parts of this show for one reason and one reason only. There is an ensemble on stage singing random stuff they don't need to be singing on stage. And I feel Open Your Heart is one of the excellent examples. If I was to do this production, which is exactly what we're (laughs) talking about here, I would have either the ensemble backstage pit singing this song and then feeding it through a radio live on stage, or I would have it pre-recorded and playing as if it was playing through a radio. Because I think it's more important that we see the relationship between Carrie and Margaret in this scene. And this is an excellent way to illustrate that than it is to have a bunch of people dressed in robes on a balcony over this house, which is often how this scene is staged. Is Get out of there. We don't want you there. We want, we want a realistic Carrie, okay? <laughs> And then we got into And Eve Was Weak, which is a wild ride. I I have a lot of thoughts on the Margaret character, but we do not have enough time for me to give acting notes. I feel like so many people play Margaret scary, and I think she needs to be scared. This is her fearing for her daughter. This is coming from a place of love. And she 100% believes that like she will be struck down. And then just like a structural thing, in a couple of the revivals we saw, she puts her in the closet and then she's just kind of able to come out at some point. She's like, hey, mom, I'm going to go back now. That closet needs to be locked. (laughs) That needs to be locked and she has to be let out because at some point later in the show, she's going to be put in the closet and she's going to be able to get herself out and that's going to matter because it's telekinesis. She's very powerful. She's the Antichrist, etc. Yeah, I completely agree. The Seattle production, where basically this whole podcast is just Seattle did it so wrong. But and we only Seattle watched like the first 20 minutes of Seattle and we're still that's roasting. All we so needed. That's all we needed. In the Seattle production, Lando, if you haven't seen it, it's really upsetting Eve was weak because um, she sings the whole, um, he will burn you. And <laughs> the director of that production was like, you know, we haven't seen Margaret smoking a cigarette, but now's the time. So... She just pulls from her bag an untouched pack of cigarettes, does not light a cigarette, and then shoves it onto Carrie's arm during the he will burn you nonsense. It's real important, as Kayla said, that we understand that Margaret actually loves Carrie, and she does all of this because she loves Carrie. And since we're on Seattle, Margaret, Alice Ripley, I love you. I blame the director completely. You're perfect. But like she looks at the ground when she's praying and like, no, you are you are praying above. You are praying to God. You aren't praying to the devil. Stop that. Look up. Come on. (laughs) The world according to Chris. I have a big problem with the character, Chris. I know you do. As she is currently written, there's very little humanity to her. And it's very clear that there's very little humanity to her. Because if you have seen any of the... uh, Carrie, the killer experience production that was done in LA, there's a big moment that happens at the end of the play where something really nasty happens to Chris. The audience almost gives a standing ovation every night because they don't like Chris. There's been nothing to humanize Chris. But my problem is, is I'm not exactly sure if we if it's important to leave Chris as a sort of Disney villain-esque, she's just evil character, or whether she should be humanized because she is a human. I don't think everyone needs a redemption arc. It's like some 17-year-olds are just terrible. I think that it, it's actually important to humanize her. 
Yes. <laughs> Discourse. But not give her a redeeming arc. I think that you should understand that she's not evil to be evil. She's evil because of the things that have happened to her and how she's handling those. Because basically what you end up seeing is with the lyrics of it's it's better to burn than get burned. I feel like Chris is talking about herself, that these are the things she has dealt with. So basically, when you look at Chris, when you look at Carrie, they're dealing with the same type of problems, but they're handling it completely differently. She is human. She does have faults and she's just not handling them. I don't think she needs more humanization because I think the world, according to Chris, does a really good job, even though it's this upbeat, peppy song. Like the lyrics are very clearly like, well, if I didn't, if I didn't make this girl feel terrible, someone would make me feel terrible. And I don't want that. Well, then I think we need to distill that more because in its current state, I don't think the audience and me personally gets enough of the Chris story. That's valid. I think to get more of that Chris story, you have to focus on the very last few bars of the world according to yeah. Chris. She slows down and has feelings. <laughs> it's almost a reprise within its own song. If we keep moving on through the show, I hate Dreamer in Disguise. Not as a song, personally, I listen to Dreamer in Disguise all the time, but its place in the show, I hate. I hate the way that it sort of just sounds like Tommy is talking about how cool he is and how he's so much better than everyone else. I'm not like other girls. Exactly. It's the classic thing that kids are supposed to write in high school, but to make it a whole song, I think is dumb. I would be fine with taking the lyrics as is, making them, shortening them and making them a spoken poem or putting a different poem in there. But I don't think it is good enough to be its own song in this show. But then how will Derek Klena croon and make us all go swoon? <laughs> no, I agree. Cut it. We and we will have a moment for Tommy later. The next song is Once You See, which is Sue's moment where she really realizes Carrie, and we will come back to Once You See because I have thoughts. I think this song is very cool and should not die here. I think it should get a fucking reprise, and that's all I'm going to say about it. It's a beautiful song, and I think that it's it's absolutely necessary to help tell the story. Yes. That wasn't in the original show, I don't think. Once you see, it was not in the original show. Yeah, it was so necessary. Okay, you ready for a feminist rant? It's going to be short. It's not going to be that ranty. Okay. Carrie, the book, was written by a man. The screenplay was written by a man. This musical was written by three men. It, all, of the, all of the prominent productions have been directed by men. And overall, I thought that they did a really good job with their female characters. I was pleasantly surprised. And then we get unsuspecting hearts. And it's like, I know you just sang a song about wanting people to know your name and about wanting to matter as an individual, but you know what you should actually care about? A man may be loving you sometime in the future. So I hate it. It doesn't line up with Carrie's I want at all. So I don't understand its purpose. I I understand that they want to set her up to go to prom, but like you can have a crush on a boy without that being your whole character trait. Like that's not a character trait. That's just like being a human sometimes. So I would l love this song not to be cut, but to be replaced with a similar vibe song. Like I, I think it's a beautiful song, but instead saying something about, Life discovering after, your own value and yes life after high school and all of the things that you can be 
And there can be a throwaway line about a man if you want, but that can't be the whole song. So yes, I would give Unsuspecting Hearts a serious rewrite with a focus on Carrie as a woman and not her needing a man to make her whole. Uh, we move on to an absolute Wait, banger. I was going to make a joke. Oh, it's not really okay. a joke. It's the truth. Lando can't cut unsuspecting hearts because laws. That's the whole joke. <laughs> it's not a joke. It's the truth. It isn't a, It's the law. Oh. Then we move on to an absolute banger. Do me a favor. I want to do nothing with this. It's just a fun song. I love it. No notes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A Night We'll Never Forget. It ends with like the most major of majorness and like everyone knows if you know anything about Carrie you know that prom night is not going to end well and so I think the music is not doing itself a favor (laughs) doing it's a favor by not letting the music tell that story so I would take the ending of the prom climax which has the little bit more minor night we'll never forget and put that on the end of a night we'll never forget replacing the very major ending do either of you remember the song where um where they go to the farm that's on a night we'll never forget i'm pretty sure at the end of that there's an allusion to them having sex i am crazy i want them to have simulated sex on the stage on a bale of hay um you're so horny max (laughs) that's all i have to say about that because it's it's an allusion to sex but there's just no reason because these are the two quote, despicable characters, not that sex is despicable, I am sex positive. I think it would just be a nice uh, element for the show because I can direct this show however I want. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Dreamer in disguise reprise. We cut it because there is no dreamer in disguise. We replace it with a reprise of Sue's song, Once You See, by Tommy because he's starting to see Carrie for real Z's. And I think that that would be a really nice view into how he's developing real feelings for her. I don't think they have to be romantic feelings. I I feel complicated about the. the but she's just like he's realizing she's a person. Like yes, I don't think that there's enough time. They I don't think they spend enough time together in the whole show to justify a romantic connection. But I do think that he is finally seeing her as a complete human being. And so I think that that would be a really neat use of that song. Also, I think it's beautiful and I think it deserves more airtime. <laughs> so I have a contrasting opinion to Kayla. Um, I think all, I, I want to, I, you know, it's, it's really a difficult thing for me to do, but I think I, I like the tone of dreamer in disguise as the reprise. I don't like dreamer in disguise as previously stated. So I actually want to reprise you shine which was originally sung between Tommy and Sue, but now I want it to be Tommy and Carrie singing uh, You Shine to each other. I think that would be a very interesting reprise that also gives the exact same feeling that we get from Dreamer in Disguise reprise. I get that because mine would not be a duet. It would be a solo, but I still like mine better. (laughs) (laughs) Lando, you're the tiebreaker. Tiebreaker. I'm the tiebreaker. You've heard our pleads to the jury what does the jury say (laughs) on once you see or you shine i'm going to say that it should be once you see oh and not you shine not because i i think that you shine emotionally hits a better tone 
But I think that alluding to that song takes away from Sue and Tommy's only song that they have truly that they have together to be themselves. I like that. You're right. <laughs> ha. Tell us about the prom okay. climax and what you want to do with that. Okay, so I already stole the end of the prom climax and slapped it on the end of the night we'll never forget. So what will we do with the end of the prom climax, you ask? I'll answer. Go further. Dissonance that motherfucker so hard. I want it to grind. Although I realized that you actually missed a song. Oh, God. Which song? <laughs> I, I stopped writing all of them down because there are so many little throwaway songs. Which one are you talking about? The alma mater. Yes, I didn't write that down. Do you have thoughts on that? Cut, cut, yeah. cut. <laughs> no, you need all you need the school song. I hate alma mater. You don't need alma mater, but you need the school song. Just because it's one thing that I would change about the production. Oh, good. Lando and I agree. <laughs> there is no reason that Open Your Heart and the alma mater have to be the same melodic tune. I think alma mater is a random song that doesn't belong where it is. We could put something else there. But the current lyrics and existence of it makes it's it's garbage. It's a complete throwaway song. The whole point of the musical structure is that you talk until you don't have the um, until your emotions are too strong and you now have to sing. And when the emotions are too tr- too strong t- uh, to sing, you dance. That's the whole sort of musical structure. And I Alma have a has thought. None of that. I have a thought. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, so this would be able to get in both of the reprises that we want. So. We could put the You Shine reprise where Alma Mater is, but the whole, so it's Carrie and Tommy leading it, but then everyone's like telling them that they shine because they're the prom king and queen and they're like being worshipped a little bit. And then I can have what I want for the Dreamer Disguise reprise. I can't believe you. That works so well in that case. I know. I should write. All right, Max. Max changed my life when he said what he'd do for Lights of the Destruction. It like... I did a brain explosion. So please share the genius. So for the destruction, there's the beginning scene, the beginning scene, the beginning moment in this where Carrie sings all of these sort of flashbacks. And in all of the productions, she strikes different poses, but she's never like lit in a nice way. And the way that I want to do this moment is that I want to recreate each of the lighting scenes from those moments in the play and and isolate them on just her so that in this moment where she sings um i will not cry i am okay all of a sudden the entire space vanishes and she is just alone flashing back through these moments of the show we should be clear that that happens after the blood drop (laughs) uh which by the way unlike the broadway production and unlike the off-Broadway production, there should be real blood dropping on her. Not it real blood, not but be, real fake blood. <laughs> yes, real fake blood. It should not be a projection because that's stupid. Lame! Cop out, cop out, cop out. Anybody who's seen the movies or read the book, we want a blood drop. That is what we're what we've been looking forward to the whole show. And when you drop or when you run on stage with a literal cup and throw it onto Carrie, it doesn't work. When you do a projection of blood falling, it also doesn't work. There should be blood. I want to lots spout. of blood. The the bucket mechanism is tricky for a lot of reasons and I understand that. What I want is the bucket to be hung but not actually have anything in it. And then when the bucket tips over, a spout in the ceiling opens up and just dumps it 
I want her yeah. drenched. And and that would be good because then you don't have to worry about any of the physics of a moving bucket, which is the yeah. problem that Kayla and I have seen in every single bootleg of productions of who have done this. Uh, our favorite uh, production, the LA production, missed Carrie missed entirely. Her so hard. No <laughs> blood hit her, but there's this massive pool of blood just next to her because of bucket physics. So I agree. I think that there needs to be some sort of spout mechanism to drop the blood consistently in the same spot. And then you can just have the bucket move, but it doesn't have to be actually. And I understand it's an issue that it's slippery and you don't want it all over the stage, which is why I feel like if they step up onto a little platform for prom king and queen and it has like something you wouldn't be able to see from the audience, even if the audience was close, just a slight a curve lip in and then a drain yeah. yeah a lip and then even a drain in the center might work if any of the people listening saw the once on this island revival at circle in the square they literally had so much rain pour out of the ceiling on this character daniel he was physically drenched and i think there was a drain but also it was sand on the floor so it was a little more forgiving than marley um, we are going to return to the destruction and another opinion of mine, one of my strong opinions. All the actors on stage singing the scary, Carrie, the mocking uh, singing in this moment, it undermines the emotions that Carrie are, is going through. I would not have the actors who are physically on stage sing those lyrics. I would do pre-recorded and have them pumped into the sound system with possibly some sort of effect added so that we still get the effect and Carrie's hearing those things, but it's not a bunch of actors gyrating at Carrie as they say random things, which is often what happens. Also, no pointing. Like Carrie does not have to point at something for it to happen. I understand you want to direct focus, but you can do that with lights. Another idea I had that was a little more avant-garde and I don't think Max liked it, but I think it's cool is if there was like projections or like some old TV screens that like light up and are probably a pre-recorded, but a video of her eyes like darting left and something happened stage left and darting right and something happened stage right. Cause it would be her eyes, not her hands. I don't want her to point and then someone go, it's just very campy. And like, I love camp, but not for this show. Um, and then this is a moment that I originally came up with Lando about seven years ago, maybe, which is there's this moment after Carrie has done all of her flashbacks where there are these very clear and loud, distinct, what sound like banging noises or what sound more like uh, somebody flipping a massive circuit breaker. And so what I want to do for those, I think it's four uh, moments, is I want there to be those massive sort of halogen lamps hanging over the um, over the traverse stage that I have. And in each of those moments, one of them explodes, which is classic for Carrie. There's lots of pyrotechnics and exploding lights in quotation marks. And in each of those moments, one will explode. And then I want the rest of this destruction scene to be lit with the prom decor and with those emergency floodlights at either end of the hall. And that will create a really stunning visual of everybody being completely sidelit from one side or the other, along with whatever red prom decoration is there that might be glowing a slight red on somebody. I think that will create a nice, beautiful visual for the destruction that Carrie wreaks. Wait, yeah, talk about Chris. I have a history in magic and illusions, and I want to actually have Chris get thrown back or th 
sort of pushed back against a wall and to have an effect called impaled where it looks like a piece of rebar or a stake of some kind actually shoots through Chris's chest. I think that will be a really stunning visual to have there. Lando, what were you planning on doing for the destruction in your in your little black box? A lot of choreographed writhing in pain. Respect. There's something that Max and I cannot figure out, and maybe you'll have a thought on it. We've thought about it, and we cannot figure it out. We both think it's important that Tommy dies accidentally, and we don't know how to make that happen. Are you not a fan of the bucket? I don't think that would be possible to have that. Like, that's the same issue with the bucket of blood pouring. Is it just, it can't be that precise. I don't trust that to safely and believably make contact with an actor night after night. And so they've just made it so she kills Tommy too. And that doesn't feel real to me. But no, I do agree. It needs to be accidental or not Carrie's doing. He could get trampled to death as people are trying to run out of the prom. I'm just spitballing right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think think something like that would definitely depend on the spacing that you have to make it believable where you're also not going to fear for the actor's safety. Ooh, I had an idea. Okay. So what if school schools, most of them have a cop now. So what if there was like a cop stationed by the door and he like sees Carrie going nuts and he shoots and him, he goes to shoot Carrie and he misses and shoots the dude. Cause he's trying to like get her to stop and sh- he shoots him. And then Carrie kills him real horrifically. So timely. Police brutality. <laughs> Okay. As far as Carrie being killed by her mother, I think it needs to be clear that Carrie is being stabbed by her mother because sometimes it's not. And additionally, it needs to be clear that Carrie is killing her mother in some way that is not a heart attack because unless she says, oh, I'm having a heart attack, which would be horrible. um, The sound effect was a... I thought the sound effect worked. I thought the sound effect worked where she slowed down the heartbeat. Oh, in the revival? Uh Uh-huh. I would probably rather, I was thinking her choking her to death without using her hands because then the mom could like bring her hands to her throat and I think that would be very clear. And then I think Carrie could just very intensely look at her and that could be very emotional. Also, this is stupid and probably should be cut, but I don't think the stab should feel like a stab. It should feel like an act of love. Like it should feel like a kiss. Like it shouldn't be like stab. It should be like she's holding her and she's she putting like, her down. Yeah, basically like a dog. It's an act of mercy. I also kind of want her to slit her throat. I think that would be very aesthetic. Oh Jesus! <laughs> Just like because the the sweeping motion I love, but also you know what I want now. I don't know how I would do it, but I want Carrie to telekinetically slit Margaret's throat. <laughs> That's how I want that to happen. I can picture it. I don't know if it is physically possible. Makeup artists? There's always a way. (laughs) Lando, do you have any opinions about the final moments for Carrie and Margaret? I, specifically with Margaret, no. But the following thing with Sue, yes. Okay, let's hear it. I am really saddened that most iterations, whether that be the production, the show itself, or just different films or other things of Carrie, everyone kind of negates the idea that Sue has been seeing visions from Carrie, that Carrie has been unintentionally showing Sue her life through her eyes. 
And I think that that is something that is missing from the show, especially because Sue and Carrie don't have enough of a onstage connection for Carrie to really be like, you know what? You are a good person. I'm not going to kill you as I'm here frantically trying to figure out what's going on with the rest of my life after I just killed my mother and killed an entire school. And I feel like that 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 connection is just underdeveloped. It's worth noting that um, the L.A. production tried very hard to create an, a, a connection like that. And the way they ended the play was extremely interesting. Sue is sitting there after her final words, looking at the space, looking at all the destruction. And the tiara for prom queen is sitting in the middle of the floor. And Sue looks at it and it begins to move. And then she lifts her hand and it flies into her hand and the lights black out. It's uh, the director sort of trying to marry Sue and Carrie together uh, so that they have more more in common. And I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if, if it's justified, but I think it's very interesting. Do you think that works enough for what you want? Or do you think that that is just kind of the director kind of adds something that shouldn't be there? I don't disagree with that as a choice. I think that that is a strong way of going. I don't think that that's necessarily in character. Yeah, I would agree with that. Since Sue hasn't done anything to show that she has TK, nor is it established that TK can be passed from one person to another. True. But considering how little we understand of Stephen King's version of telekinesis, that could very well be just a common thing that everyone in that universe knows. So now that we've spent an extremely long time reimagining this show, um, <laughs> let's hear some final thoughts. Lando, you have a very strong opinion that uh, is in contrast to basically the way that Kayla and I both see the show. Would you mind talking about that? Yeah. So I absolutely love the ideas that you guys have for your reimagined carry, both collectively and independently. The biggest th- contrast that I really have, though, is I don't view Carrie as a horror show when everyone else has very strong ideas that this is horror, which, I mean, makes sense considering that it's from Stephen King, the, the king of horror. But no, I think that th- I think that the show grounds itself a little bit more in reality and the horrors of that, just because it, to me, the show is more about the bullying and the abuse that can happen in society. You can thank Stafford Arima for that. Stafford Arima was the director of The Revival, and he was the one who added all the intense bullying themes, because apparently that was not at all, pre- well, not apparently, it wasn't really present at all in the original. Yeah, I I mean, I agree in that I don't think of it as like about the telekinesis or about the sci-fi. It's very much grounded. My touch point for it would not be the bullying, like that's important, but my touch point is definitely the relationship with the mom and and the the home life, which I would do without being Terry Hands. Thank you. <laughs> well, on that note, Lando, thank you so much for being our first guest. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been real. Remember us when you're big and fancy and directing things. Remember us when you direct Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> Remember this podcast. Oh, there'll definitely be some things I'm stealing from it. Thank God. You'd be really offended if you didn't. Oh, <sighs> Great. Thank you so much for joining us. As Kayla had said, you are our guinea pig. So <laughs> everybody from here on who comes on as a guest will be referencing what Lando has done. <laughs> yeah, that is true for better or worse. 
Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed this bumpy ride of a first podcast. It'll just keep getting smoother. We're excited to be bringing you this content. If you want to see images related to our podcast today or just generally keep up with us, you can follow us on Instagram at getitrightpod. You can email us at evergetitrightpod at gmail.com. Because Get It Right Pod was taken. If you just can't get enough of our sweet, silky voices and you want to see our faces, maybe some outtakes, other content that we will come up with at a later date, you can follow us on Patreon and give us your money so we can buy better sound equipment. Finally, if you would go on to your Apple, Google, Spotify, whichever podcast app, please leave us a review. Reviews are what ensure that future listeners will get to see our podcast on those platforms. We will also read all of them. We will. We'll read all of them. Until further notice, we'll shout out everybody who leaves a review. (laughs) As long as that is reasonable, we will do that. Thank you all so much for listening. You'll hear from us again in two weeks. Bye. Bye.